Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me is Laura Ekstrand. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you. So where are you and what are you up to these days? (laughs) I am currently sitting in Livingston, New Jersey in my office. And what I'm up to is running Vivid Stage, a small professional theater in Summit, New Jersey. And I'm in the middle of catching up on a whole bunch of work. That's what I'm doing today. So tell me a little bit, how did you get to be a patron of the New Jersey arts scene? (laughs) You know, how did you go from uh, Yale, where you did some performance, to doing what you're doing now? Just fill you in on that. that, Fill you in. Just like, how did you get there? Okay. Well, I was a theater studies major and uh, and worked in New York for a couple of years. And then I went back to grad school at Sarah Lawrence for my MFA And then after that, I actually worked in casting for about a year, film casting, and I really couldn't stand not making theater. So after about a year, I said, that's that. And uh, and shortly thereafter, I, I started this company in 1994. So I've been running it ever since. And uh, and throughout, I'm acting, directing, writing, and producing and anything else they'll let me do. So, uh, you know, what was your vision when you started it in 1994? What was your vision? What did you want it to be? Oh, well, my vision at the time was nothing like what it is now. A friend of mine and I just decided we were going to stop doing really crummy theater in New York and start doing good theater in New Jersey, where we're both from. So we just wanted to do a couple shows and we did a couple shows and that kind of led to a couple more. And then we were offered a space to do a full season and it just kind of kept growing until somehow it's my, uh, turns out it's my career. So what do you know? So <laughs> how did you differentiate between the crummy theater that was happening in New York and the good theater you wanted to do? You know, help me understand what that <laughs> is. Cause you know, is it like pornography? You sort of like know it when you see it or is it like, like um, what? That's yeah, that's an interesting question. I, there's a, a lot of wonderful theater in New York. I just wasn't doing any of it. You know, when you first get out of school, you're doing a lot of, or I was anyway, doing a lot of showcases and kind of experimental stuff and no pay and nobody comes to see it. And so the quality wasn't good and the time commitment was huge. And and it just felt like, what is this amounting to? And the answer kind of was absolutely nothing. So I think that the level of work that I was doing was not at all satisfying artistically. And also because, because I'm, I'm from New Jersey, living in New Jersey was a lot more affordable and there was kind of um, an accessibility of the New Jersey theater professional scene that I just didn't feel in New York. I felt like New York had all the theater it needed, but there was a little bit of uh, an opening for us in New Jersey. Yeah, as a uh, a dweller of the suburbs myself, I will mm-hmm. say that there are people who crave sophisticated, engaging arts, performing arts, be it music, 
theater, whatever it is, who don't live in major metropolitan areas. Exactly. And we have the benefit of being near a major metropolitan area. So we have access to the talent and the really sophisticated, you know, patrons that would go to New York and do go to New York who also want to do something in New Jersey. And and now, after all these years, we have people who come in the in the opposite direction from New York to see us. So that's kind of fun too. So what were the kinds of shows that you were first putting on? <laughs> what are the kinds of shows that you're putting on now? And I'm assuming there's an evolution. And I don't know very many artists who don't evolve over time. Right. I'm assuming there was. So can you explain that? Yes. Hmm. The first couple shows we did, we really wanted, I mean, we were just entertaining ourselves and our friends and we wanted to have a good time. So they, they were a little more um, lighthearted. And they were all kind of new. A lot of them were original works and new things. And um, so that hasn't changed, but the tone has changed somewhat. Over time, I realized that if I have a couple opportunities per year to speak to the public, that's a really heavy like responsibility and a great opportunity. So I decided that I would think more carefully about what we were putting into the world. So now we focus on, gosh, I don't even know how to say it without sounding like a goofball, but... <laughs> Stories that, that really illuminate the human condition and that connect people and their common experiences in all of our common experiences um, emotionally. So that's our stuff is still very funny, I think, but it, it has a kind of a humanity at its base that can also go in other directions. That's not a goofball answer at all. I would say <laughs> that if there was a time in our history that we needed something like theater to bring us together and explore commonalities in human the human condition it's now. Yeah, I think so too. And and I really think that um, that's what we, we aim to do. And that's what we feel in our theater right now. We're doing a show called Water in My Hands. And my character has survived cancer treatment. And she's told now she's going to live. And she has no idea how to do that now. You know, she's prepared to die. She has no idea in the world how to live. So it's that kind of story that, you know, people in the audience have said, oh my gosh, you know, my family member or I went through that. And so it feels very relevant. And that's what we hope for. Are there particular stories you think need to be told now hmm. that you're focusing on or you're searching for? You're trying to find writers to, to distill? Oh boy, that's a tough question. Well, I'll tell you, the question is so, it's so layered, Tim, <laughs> that I don't know how to answer it right away. So we we had we had an original evening right after the 2016 inauguration that and we really felt like the community needed to be together and talk. And so we called it continuing the conversation. And I just solicited 10 minute plays from a whole bunch of writers. And one was Steve Harper, our classmate. And I said, write anything you want to about what's going on in the country right now. So we got a lot of stories, a lot of diverse stories. And we had about 30 actors and eight directors. And we put on this one night of these shows and we were packed and people were so grateful for the opportunity just to kind of be together and process what was going on that um, the post-show discussion was almost as long as the show itself. So occasionally we kind of meet the moment head on, but more often we kind of tell the personal stories behind the kind of big picture stories. So our focus is kind of micro rather than macro. Well, I think a lot of times the best stories are. I mean, that's how mm -hmm. you can actually get to the micro. Of the right. macro, rather, by focusing on the micro. 
Because we all understand, we all have micro every day. Yes, that's right. That's right. And behind every kind of headline, there's some kind of human narrative going on. And, and those are the ones that we really try to, to dig up in the writing that we find. How do you think about representation on the stage? Like who can represent mm. particular groups or particular ideas? Yeah. Why aren't you giving me softball questions today? I, I don't know why we're going, <laughs> going to all these places today. Yeah, that's a really, really big question. And it's something that we've been really thinking about uh, coming back live. Now, during the pandemic, we actually were virtual the whole time. We performed online the whole time. But we are thinking carefully about whose stories are on stage and who gets to tell them. And I, I feel like it's it's a process that we are in the middle of. So I can't say, well, I solved that question. And now we're, you know, so oh, I don't uh, think this is a question we can solve easily. It's not a pat answer kind of question. Right. So I feel like my challenge is to expand the writers that I know, because I actually do know a lot of different actors, but I feel like the pool of writers that I am familiar with that I have access to is not as diverse and as interesting and varied as I'd like it to be. So I feel like in the next year or many, that's my challenge is to find the writers that are telling these different stories so that I can make sure that, you know, we only have four main stage shows a year. We're not going to be able to tell every story, but we can definitely tell more stories than we're telling right now. So that's, that's kind of what I'm in the middle of at the theater. You know, as I'm looking at the diaspora from New York City of people I know and the people who both want to participate and listen to art mm. and the people who want to perform it, I wonder whether or not the pandemic gives us an opportunity to get to a more rich regional theater ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? I do. I'm a board member at the New Jersey Theater Alliance, and we've been asking ourselves this. We've had a lot of like intense questioning and um, self-assessment during the pandemic because things were a little quieter. And what we're realizing is, especially, I can only speak to New Jersey professional theater, but we're realizing that we are not as diverse as the communities that we're in. So the theater community is much less diverse than, than our communities. And so that means that we've got a lot of work to do cultivating young artists and making contact with all the different people who are around us who are making art but are not part of the kind of mainstream professional theater in New Jersey. So I think you know, as we said before, it's a long-term, not a short-term question. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, Back to the conversation. Right. And I've seen, um, you know, a lot of people, younger people move to our town. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them came from Manhattan thinking, now they're asking, like, I, I have friends who ask, it's like, where do I go out and see a show? Like, I don't want to slip into the city, mm. but where can I go see something? We had a live concert in our town park that was limited in the number of people who could come. There's a big town party and they had some very, very good bands. And people fought for those tickets like rabid dogs because like yeah. they just there's this hunger. Yes. It's so like how could the people who hunger for the kind of theater experience that you provide find it, support it, think about how to bring it to the communities they live in. Mm. Because I think people want more intimate, less crowded 
closer to home live experiences. Right. So like, how does like a, a person like me who's not a performing artist help performing artists do their thing in my town? Yes. Well, thank you for asking that because it's really important that people who are interested in it are coming out because what we're finding right now is that audiences are much smaller. The audiences that are coming are really committed. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in every performance that we have. People are really focused, but there are fewer people. Um, So I think that if people are interested, I think it takes just a little research online. Like in New Jersey, we have the Theater Alliance. So that means all the professional theaters are housed on the same website in addition to our own websites. And a lot of states have that kind of, you know, aggregation of professional theaters. So I I would say just do a tiny bit of homework about who's around you and what their aesthetic is and find somebody who really matches what you're interested in. And chances are you can go there fairly reasonably and, you know, park easily and have a nice dinner and, you know, be home in your bed by, you know, 11 o'clock at night. So it's not a terrible, uh, not a terrible experience. Yeah. I, I will just say that I, I, I've stopped judging my parents for their tendency to have dinner at five o'clock. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I used to give them a lot of grief. My mother passed away long ago, but you know, now I'm like, okay, there's a certain wisdom to go to bed earlier. <laughs> I, I'm a little hungry at five. I could go have dinner. <laughs> And you get the pie with it, so why not? That's right. (laughs) Exactly right. So how do you think that people can find the kind of um, quality that you were um, talking about? You don't want to go to see bad theater. You want to see good theater. (laughs) Well, and I have to say, nobody wants to make bad theater either. The kind of theater that I was doing in New York, no one set out to make bad theater, but it, it sure was bad. So, I mean, I just have to say that that it's people trying. It's definitely people trying. I think trust your friends is one of my main pieces of advice. Word of mouth, especially for small theaters who don't have a huge marketing budget, is really one of the best ways to find out who's doing good stuff. And also take a chance is another piece of advice. You know, it's it's one night, give it a try, and you might discover something wonderful and amazing. So that's my advice. So can we just talk a little bit about your your artistic process? Like, How do you, when you come to a role, mm. how do you go about sorting out how to embody the character you are going to present? Yeah. Well, I think one of the first things is to carefully read the script because there's a whole lot of information in there. And it's not just the kind of names, places, dates, information, but how does the character behave? How do they respond? Um, what don't they say and what do they say and how do they say what they say? And then after you go through the script really carefully, and that's not just one time, but many times in rehearsal, but I really feel like I try to discover what are the things that are really easy for me? What are the things that I understand right away? You know, what are the experiences that I've had? Those things, check mark. I get them right away. But then you're left with the ones that you don't understand that maybe you've never experienced. And those are the ones that you have to work a little more for. Maybe you have to think about, you know, other people's experiences that you have to understand a little bit better. And you fill in all those gaps until you have a roadmap through the script where you really feel like your feet are on the ground for every moment of the play. And do you find going through that process helps you relate to different people in your life yes more empathetically yes. it's got to be an extreme amount of empathy i would think to be able to present someone else yes it is and i think i have to say i think that actors are empathetic people generally or else they wouldn't be actors that they have this curiosity about how other people work 
And then they have this desire to turn, you know, people's hearts inside out and show them. So I think that, um, I would say, yes, I think it makes you more empathetic. And I think actors tend to be more empathetic and, and artists in general, because you're looking at the world through the eyes of many, many other people all the time. So you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that there are times when, the, especially now, where the, the, the audience might be a little quieter. Have you ever had the moment on stage where you look out and you know you have the audience? They're completely wrapped up in the performance that's happening. Yes, thank God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I would hope so. But yes. I mean, that's what the thing that I would imagine you aspire to. What's it like to look for a moment? Do you get out of yourself and just look and say, we're getting it. We're having a moment here. It's the most thrilling and wonderful experience you can have because that's why you do it. You don't go up there for your own ego alone, I'll say, alone. You know, you really go there because you want to touch other people. You want to have an effect on other people. And when you see that that you're affecting them and then they affect you back, I mean, your performance is informed by what they're giving you too. And uh, I, that's why I love shows where you speak directly to the audience. I love direct address scripts the one I'm doing now has some of that. And I treasure those moments. They're so exciting. They're so exciting to look into people's eyes and, and really be with them. And yes, it's extremely gratifying to see people crying or smiling or laughing or any of that stuff. It's, it's the most satisfying experience that an actor can have. What's the most fulfilling role you've ever played? Ooh. Oh, boy. That, I can't answer that question, I don't think. I think it's more about moments and I think it's extreme emotion. I mean, there have been things I did, um, I've, I have done where there's a huge laugh just every night, guaranteed huge laugh. And I just remember those, those single lines that got the laugh every night. And there are other moments. There's a play I did called this and in it, a woman has lost her husband. And in, in one of the latest scenes, she, opens the box that contains his ashes and she smears the ashes on her face because she misses him so much. And like that to me is just the, the, you know, the elemental human experience of grief. And that is really satisfying too. So I would say the extremes are the ones that I remember the most and that I enjoy the most. So what do you see in the next 10, 15 years for yourself artistically? What are the kinds of things you want to push yourself to do? Well, one thing I'm doing more of lately is writing, and I and it kind of coincided with my son going to college. <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> <laughs> it's something that I kind of have done a little bit of over the years, but I was kind of holding off on really investing in it. And then the moment arrived, and I was just thinking, well, what am I waiting for? Let me get going. So I would love to continue to write much more. Um, and I find that the same things that interest me as an actor interest me as a writer. So I'll probably, you know dig into those personal, intimate stories. Um, so I really want to do more of that. And I have to say, I'm much more aware recently of cultivating a younger generation, especially of women theater makers, and making them feel powerful and making them understand that they are creators of their own career, but also they are creators of art. You know, an actor doesn't have to just be an actor. There's so many other things that are within these artists that they should be expressing. So I, I've, I've really prioritized cultivating young women in theater in the last couple of years. And how do you think you can effectively do that? I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying I'm really asking about the how. Because you know, sometimes when I like 
think about how I speak to the younger people at work, or I think about talking to our children or their friends, I worry about sounding like that. Well, back in olden times, let me tell you how it was. <laughs> and then uh, and also like, okay, well, there's all these things I see and like mm. there's paths that I didn't know I was on or there are paths that I can see for them mm-hmm. and I want to tell them. Mm-hmm. But some of it is like they have to discover it themselves. And so how do you balance those things when you're trying to motivate people to, as you say, feel powerful, feel bold artistically? Two things come to mind. One is that I give them opportunities. I'm in a, a nice position at the theater. I can give people opportunities. Now we don't have a million dollars and I can't give people you know, fame and fortune, but if there's someone that I think would make a fantastic teacher, for example, I can, I just did this. In fact, she was scared to death, this young woman. And I said, I think you're a teacher. And I said, let's put you in this class and I will go over the curriculum with you. And we will, I won't leave you dangling out there. And she is a terrific teacher and I knew it. And I, so I could put her there. So that's part of it to really give people opportunities. But the other thing is, as I reach this mature age, I am getting asked to do some training. And um, I've done some communications training with young nonprofit professionals. And so when people ask me to train them, all of a sudden the doors open to my sending these messages um, about their own power and about their own ability to express themselves. So I love those, I love those opportunities. That is awesome. So we've gotten to the part of the podcast. It's our lightning round where I'll ask you some quick questions and see if you can give me some quick answers. What was the most important class you took at Yale? I think it was Nico Sakharopoulos' theater studies class sophomore year. What role that you haven't had that the listeners might be familiar with would you most like to do before you retire? Hmm. It's probably something that hasn't been written yet, but it might be, I might be interested in playing the professor in wit. Excellent. Do you actually ever see yourself retiring? It looks like you're just so invested in what you're doing that I (laughs) can't even imagine you stopping what you're doing. No, I can't. I think I'll do it until I can't anymore. I'm not sure I'm going to run the company for the rest of my life, but I think I am going to be an artist for the rest of my life. What do you do for fun? I teach yoga and I do yoga. Oh my goodness. Uh, you can help me with that at the reunion. I can't do <laughs> yoga. I'm just pathetic. Um, I try it every once in a while and I'm reminded I'm, I'm humbled. Let's just say that it's a humbling experience <laughs> for me. So what are you most looking forward to at a reunion? <sighs> I think it's seeing people that I mean, the, the people that I'm still in touch with I, and I love, I, I'm very up to date on what they're doing, but I think it's seeing the people that I enjoyed knowing in college that I have not been in touch with at all. That's what I'm looking forward to. Great. Me too. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has really been great. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for, you know, really grilling me on those tough questions. <laughs> In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while, an in-person reunion, June 2nd, 
3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.